My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity FM. Singularity FM is the place where we interview the future. And today, speaking of the future, my guest is Robin Hansen. Robin recently wrote a book called The Future of M, Work, Love, and Life When Robots Rule the World. By the way, this is the third interview that I have done with Robin, uh, and I highly recommend you watch at least the second one before this one, which was arguably, well, not arguably, the most heated ever debate and discussion I've ever had on my podcast for its six years of duration. So without further ado, Welcome, Robin. Thanks for having me. And just for precision, it's the age of M, work, love, and life when robots rule the earth. Not that it makes that much difference. <laughs> oh, okay. My bad. So robots would, would rule the earth. Okay. Excellent. All right. Fantastic. Uh, sorry about this uh, inaccuracy. Um, so, Robin, it's been, what, uh, two years or maybe longer, three years? I think so, yeah. So you got to see the early version of the book, a very early version, and, and see how these things go. So hopefully it looks better by now, as usually these things do. Well, let's talk a little bit about that sort of progress and generality before we jump into the meat of the matter here. So first of all, the, the, the most obvious change that I saw from the early draft that I read last time was that it's grown almost double in size. Is that the case? I don't remember the exact number. It may be three or four times the size of the first thing I gave you, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so it's much longer. Now, if, if the publisher had been ready for me when I had a what I thought was a reasonable draft, I might have published that and it would be half as long. But because it's an academic publisher and they're slow and they weren't that eager to get things going, they have a process. So they had a deadline later and I just kept writing because uh, I was into it. So uh, that's why the book is longer. That's fantastic, yeah, because that's the first and most obvious difference for me, who haven't touched uh, your draft since very early in the days, as you said, and it's just at least double in size, as you said, so that's a very clear difference. What else has, has changed, uh, perhaps, uh, for the past three years since that early, very early draft that I read? Well, I think it's the consequence of all the additional detail. It changes, I think, the style and character of it somewhat. So when it was much shorter, say a third or a quarter of the length, I was focused on a few very high-level overall conclusions and, and describing them and, and making them plausible, et cetera. And as I had more time, I just went through more areas. I just looked at more different topics I could, and areas of academia I could apply, and I tried to apply them. And so now it's a broader thing. It, it covers more different topics, and it gives a, a different impression. It gives a sense of, of a richer world, a world of more and more details that don't come together into some overall image. Uh, it's just like our world would be, really. It's a, a mess full of uh, pluses and minuses and <laughs> good things and bad things and, and things that are just weird. Yeah, I would agree with that. That's a, that's a very apt uh, description. And, and it, the, the description. And it's, it's much richer and much, much more detailed and much more expansive in its scope, too. Uh, definitely. So other than that, uh, what... Has there been anything, one thing in particular that that has possibly changed since the early draft uh, in the past three years that you thought, oh, well, this is how I saw things back then. And this is based on the past three years of work I've done on this. This is how now I've changed my view on this. 
Well, there was definitely an error early on where I was thinking in terms of uh, using a single processor and time sharing to do M's. And later, someone pointed out that just doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> in order to do an emulation, you have to use so many processors, you'd almost never be down to one processor time sharing. So uh, that got set aside. Um, I think the, the thing that I knew ahead of time was difficult, but that I've really come to be impressed with how difficult it is, is just the idea of what happens when there's other copies of you around that you interact with. And I've tried to come to that from so many different directions to try to get my head around it and to ask what would happen. But at the end, of, at the end, it's still somewhat hard to get your head around. How would that feel? How would you relate to these other copies of you? Uh, you know, especially since they have most of your memories up until a month ago, up until yesterday, uh, just trying to think through the emotion of, of just how you would relate to that and what you would be willing to do for them and they'd do for you and how you'd share things with them or help them out. Um, it's still really hard. And I have to say, I still am not that sure about how that plays out. Right, right. That's that's definitely a very, very hard exercise. And it reminded me a little bit. It's it's like saying or trying to to foresee what it's like to be a bat, isn't it? In some sense, right, that is. Yeah. So I can from a distance, I can analyze lots of sort of basic economics. But when I come down to like to a core human sort of continuous experience and how it feels. I'm moving farther away from my expertise as being an economist, and I'm also moving into an area where maybe, you know, you just have to feel it and see how it felt. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. you could describe it, and trying to analyze it ahead of time is heroic and, and the sort of thing you should try, but you just really won't know until you try. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What has been the response so far? Uh, when did the book come out, actually? Because I know I was waiting for this interview because... Uh, uh, you very helpfully offered for me to to get the audio version this time. Uh, so when was the, the book's actual publishing date? In the United States, it was June 1st. In the United Kingdom, it was a week earlier. But as you say, the audio book didn't come out until, uh, I think, August 19th. So it's been a while uh, since the book came out. I see. I see. And And what has been the response so far by the audience or the academic world or, or anyone of note? So a few years ago, when I had a draft, I went to a um, book agent who was a book agent for some of my colleagues. And I said, ta-da, I finally have a book. Your, your colleagues have been telling what a great person I am and, and that I, they should check up, you should check out my book when I finally get it. And here it is. And she looked at it and she said, I can't sell this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is too weird. This is, you know, maybe this will work if you can get some quirky editor at a publisher to, you know, have a quirky relationship with you, but it's not the sort of thing agents can sell. So basically, you know, she just didn't think it's the sort of thing they could sell. And when I first approached uh, my editor at my publisher, um, you know, he wasn't that thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> he was considering it and, and, you know, it was a slow process because he wasn't really eager to grab it or something. And then, but when they finally, you know, did sign on and do it, and then over the next few years after that, the, the general area of robotics and artificial intelligence became more popular in the, in the wider media. So they were more interested in it as a general topic area. Then they decided when they finally looked at it, they, they liked the title, they liked the cover. And then they said, oh, well, this is going to be our like lead book in our book in, in, in the science category for the season. Cause you know, so it rose to the top of their agenda there. And so when the book finally came up, you know, they had more support for it because they saw it as, as a lead candidate. And 
you know, it got reviews in the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times and the Guardian, which are pretty high profile. I uh, got a mention in the New Yorker. And so, you know, compared to most academic books, compared to, you know, what I certainly had any right to expect four years ago when I started on it, uh, it's gotten a lot of attention, a lot of it sold, you know, roughly 5,000 copies last I heard a month or so ago. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, Amazon, as you may know, has been having these struggles with publishers where it tries to uh, demand yes. more. And so they took away the Kindle version uh, from from my book. There's been a war between Amazon and all the publishers for some time on and off. And this is part of their leverage of saying, well, if you don't give us a better price, we we just won't offer a Kindle version of your book. So that that's there was it was offered for a month or so and it hasn't been since then. So but overall again I'm I'm delighted that it's gotten a lot more attention than most academic books do. And of course that I had any right to expect given that I basically wrote a pretty weird book and just wrote like what I wanted to write about going against all the advice of people saying, yes, but these other books would sell. Why don't you write a book on that? Yeah, it's it's pretty geeky and, and weird uh, to, to a great degree. So and 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 deep sort of deep into the the meat, uh, like the nitty gritty of it. Also, I can see that. Right. So it does. It is more academic in the sense that instead of like carrying the reader through with a narrative and some examples and some light concepts repeated several different ways, I, I'm really quite dense. So and several people have mentioned that I, I really used as few words as possible to say each little point and crammed a lot of things into the whole. No, you, you definitely are a fantastic writer and you have a very good style. Uh, so uh, totally, totally uh Great job on that for sure. Uh, now let me just ask, out of curiosity, though, you said you given them the title and the cover. What did they do, actually, the publishers? Because I mean, my understanding is usually they come up with a best title and the best cover to promote your work. So if you've already given them both <laughs> the title and the cover, what what did they do? Well, my overall attitude is that whenever. I do a thing for the first time, I should do it the usual way. And then after that, maybe I should consider some alternative ways. So it definitely seemed the first book I wrote, I should publish it the usual way. Many people say, you know, publishing through the ordinary publishers is old hat and you should go with new ways, but try it the old way. Uh, you know, one thing they, of course they do is, is they have editors who will go through and give like careful checking of spelling and things like that. They, they didn't change much in the prose, uh, uh, basically, they looked for errors and, and formatting. Um, and they have a network of uh, connections to media and things like that. I may well have not gotten those media reviews had I not been from Oxford. And I, it's the credential and the credibility of the outlet of Oxford that, that carries a lot of weight. So, so so let's make the publisher clear. Who is the publisher again? This is Oxford University Press. Exactly. Yeah. And I signed another contract for a second book that'll come out this spring also with them, this time with a co-author. So I'll have two books from Oxford University Press. The second one is more on a very different topic. It's called The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. It's more about all the different things we do that we are wrong about why we do them. If you've been reading my blog, you'll know that's a, it's been a theme for many years. Mm -hmm. Bias. For example, yeah. Yes. Very interesting. So let, let's stick to this book for our conversation today, and we'll, we'll probably touch upon the, 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 the upcoming second book uh, towards the end of our conversation. So uh, other than the publishing and stuff, what's kind of the, and, and, the, and the sort of the sales numbers that you shared with us, what's kind of the, the feedback from the public that you've been getting? Well, I'm delighted that I'm getting feedback, of course. Uh, the, um, 
I've been giving a lot of talks in the book. I'm about to give talk number 80 uh, in a few days here. Uh, so I've had a lot of experience um, hearing people who um, listen to my talk give a reaction. I sent you know copies of the book initially out to 500 people. I got 150 back with some at least some sort of comments. And then you know there's I've got a website of reviews. There's at least 20 of them up there on my website, and there's another 20 say at Amazon reviews and Goodreads. So I've seen a lot of different reviews. Uh, I guess the, the highest level thing to say is, uh, which is what I've seen for other people's books when I've commented on it, you know, most reviews don't actually engage the book that much. Most reviews are sort of talking about your impressions or your feelings while you were reading it, sort of the overall style or whether you like this overall thing. So most reviews aren't like as an intellectual engagement trying to sort of rebut your arguments or counter them or to, to challenge them, um, which is somewhat sad, but this is true for the vast majority of books. So they express, express a disagreement, but don't back it up. Right, right. So, I mean, this is an interesting fact that I've been noticing that I think is basically true in the world. People make arguments all the time, or they make claims all the time, the vast majority of claims. A mi minority of those claims are backed up with any sort of argument, okay? And a, a minority of those arguments ever receive a counter-argument. That is, you know, it's this rat funnel, a huge number of claims, a small number of arguments, and a much smaller range of counter-arguments. So this whole idea that there's, there's, there's a conversation in the world where people make arguments and there's counter-arguments is really not the way the world actually works. It, it does happen sometimes, and it's nice when it does, but the, mostly the world is people making claims, people reacting to those claims, perhaps. But arguments and counter-arguments, especially counter-arguments, are just rare in the world. Let me be a little self-indulgent and indulging and and sort of selfish here for a second and ask you: Would you place me in that category? Oh, absolutely, uh, sure. <laughs> right, yeah, yes, you're <laughs> definitely uh, someone who uh, will try to give arguments uh, and engage arguments. So that that's a nice thing. Oh, oh, sorry. So, so let me. I, I think I misunderstood you. I, I thought you put me in that category where people just make a claim but don't make an argument well i meant in, in your discussion about my book previously in our conversation you were definitely you know trying to challenge the conclusions and so that that was a engagement on terms of counter arguments basically uh so you wouldn't put me in that category of those most people or, or no right or yes. i would say that you are the exception where you, you are focused more on certainly like challenging a conclusion rather than uh, accepting. So again, if you just look at any book you like and then look up the random Google review of it or discussion, most reviews simply repeat the main themes of the book and don't at all challenge the book in any way. Um, that's just the nature of most reactions to books everywhere. Well, thank you for, for being so generous uh, generous towards me. Uh, given the, the kind of confrontational uh, sort of setup and interview, the way it worked out, and many of my audience even were surprised by, by it. I was kind of a little surprised uh, by it myself, too. Uh, and some people told me, oh, that was the best interview you've ever done. Some people told me that was the very worst interview you've ever done by far. So uh, thank you for, for that kind of a generous uh, qualification of it. Let me ask you this. What was perhaps, I don't know if you've had the chance to watch at some point uh, oh, that interview again, or or was it... What was kind of the most unfair or misunderstood or misplaced kind of uh, 
attack or 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 or, or arguments that I tried to to put forward against you your book. I, I have to admit I did not look at it again lately, uh, recently. But my memory from years later, the way I mentally summarized it, is that uh, you were uncomfortable with or disapproving of sort of the neutral analytic stance I was taking, and in particular the idea that the default future would be one where, like the past, nobody rules the world, there is no global coordination, many local things happen, and those could end up being things other people don't like. And it's not because there's a villain per se, it's just because global coordination is hard and uh, mostly technology just show up and have effects whether people like them or not. That's I would claim that's been history. And so that's what we should expect in the future. And you see the future centrally as a thing we should choose together and that we do choose together and that we need this central conversation about what we want to have happen. And the idea that that conversation is somewhat beside the point is something you didn't like. Okay, that's not exactly the way I, I see it, but it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll focus more on you and your views this, this day. So just the last question on this topic is, was there at all anything useful from that interview that may have had some kind of uh, usefulness for you in the rewriting and expanding of your book uh, for the final version? I'm, I'm very sure it must have. I, I'm not sure which particular things exactly it changed, but uh, it's very easy when you're writing a book to just get into your own head. And in your own head, you know what you think and you know what the arguments for what you think are, and you really neglect what other people would think about it and how they would react. And uh, you, what you need is for other people to react to what you've written so that you can have a sense of where to focus your attention on the kinds of issues that are of concern to them. So I'm, I'm pretty sure you must have influenced my trying to frame things in a way that uh, your concerns would be more directly at least addressed and explained more clearly, even if I didn't end up agreeing with your position. Right, because my impression was that I watched a couple of your presentations uh, for your book uh, as a preparation for this uh, uh, interview. And my impression was that you have, from my point of view, softened and uh, kind of expanded uh, and softened a lot or considerably since since the first draft in, in, in some ways. Uh, maybe not enough for me, but yet impressively there, there's been some considerable changes since the first draft, in, in my view. Uh, I think it's enough said on the topic of, of our previous discussion. And of course, anyone who is interested on catching up with the previous interview uh, is welcome to do so, and I will put a link. But let's focus on the final published, finished version of your book. So the best place to start is, of course, what's your thesis and or main message, if you have one? At the base level, I'm writing a book about a particular future scenario. So the assumption is sometime roughly in the next century or so, the time isn't very important, we have a technology of what's called brain emulation. This is the ability to take particular human brains, scan them in fine spatial chemical detail, make a computer model of that particular brain that acts like the same original brain would in the same situations. The assumption is that technology eventually shows up, it's cheap enough, to replace people, <laughs> hearing that buzz out there again, and that it's happened before other forms of artificial intelligence or robots as smart as people. So uh, if 
we have robots as smart as people in some other way, the book is less relevant. If we never achieve this technology, it's less relevant. Or if some other enormous change uh, you know, revolutionizes everything in society before this technology shows up, it's also less relevant. But assume that this scenario plays out, the book is about what would actually happen. So my complaint is many people have talked about this scenario in the past, but they've talked about the philosophy of mind or the philosophy of identity or which technologies would enable it. And they've rarely sat down and seriously asked, yeah, but what would actually happen? And at the meta level, I want to say it's possible to take particular technology scenarios and work out in quite some detail what would happen by just applying our standard consensus academic uh, you know, results and conclusions in many different areas. And I hope to inspire or shame other people into doing the same sort of thing with other technologies. Say, hey, take your favorite scenario and work out in great detail what would actually happen. Very cool. And because you speak uh, about a number of social sciences that you apply to sort of uh, uh, lay out the implications at a number of different levels, uh, then, of course, like any science, it has to be falsifiable, right? Well, I... Sciences are usually not falsifiable, actually, unfortunately. I mean, it might be a nicer world if they were, but really? most of most things we know in the world are not very falsifiable. That's just the nature of the things we actually know. Ah, but I thought that's the nature of science is that it's falsifiability. It's, it's uh, you know, it works and it's correct under these conditions. And if these results show up, then therefore our starting hypothesis was wrong. So, I mean, you start up with a hypothesis you follow the evidence. If the final outcome does not concur with the original hypothesis, then you have to alter the hypothesis, which is what falsifiability is all about. You definitely have theories, and they have empirical consequences, and you compare theories to empirical consequences, and you prefer some theories over others based on a better fit with the empirical things you actually see, but it's not as sharp and close as a one-to-one -one mapping of you have a particular theory and you have a particular result and it falsifies the theory and therefore the theory is dead. Uh, now, as a, under, as a high school student long ago, I loved physics exactly because they could tell me that story. All the other classes I took, they told me, well, we know these things and we're going to tell them to you, but you'll kind of have to trust us. You're way too young and you know way too little to be able to judge these things. And in physics, the guy told me, I'm going to tell you a bunch of things and then I'm going to immediately put you in a lab and you're going to be able to test whether I've told what I've told you is true. You're going to be able to directly measure and see uh, a, a direct test of my claims. And that was great. I said, wow, I can don't have to trust them. I can right now as a high school student directly test these theories. And that was very empowering. And that's partly why I went into physics. I loved physics because like, I didn't have to trust them at that point. And I became an undergraduate in physics and I got a master's in physics. Since then, I've published two articles in physics. Physics is wonderful because of that. But that's an exception. Most of the things we know about the world are just not that easy to directly test. Like most of economics, even, you can't give a high school student a little thing and say, look, I told you this thing, but now you can find it out for yourself. Mm. So, the, so then that that there's two implications at least. I mean, there's a number of implications, but the the smaller one is perhaps that. So, uh, to answer my question, your book is not falsifiable necessarily, or your thesis in in your book is not necessarily falsifiable. Well, my, more unusually compared to most, since I'm taking a particular technology scenario and working out what would happen if my assumptions are met, 
we will find out what that world is like. And then we could be able to do quite a fine grain testing of my book. You'll be able to go through peeps by piece in that world and ask for each of the features of that world, how well it fits uh, my book. So that's an unusually high degree of testability at a very specific level for most social science, really. Right. Because, I mean, if it's not, then the, the point would be, how do we know that what you say is true or, or why should we take it uh, uh, at its worth? If, if like anyone can say anything and it's not falsifiable by anyone as to what's true or not, right? That's, that's the whole power of science, right? The power of us collectively together is that we know many more things than any one of us knows or that any one of us could ever find out. So we definitely need to have social institutions together that we can trust so that we can rely on each other and not have to figure everything out for ourselves. That works better in some areas than others, but academia is one of our main sources on general knowledge about the world, and academia has divided itself up into different disciplines, and in each discipline they have somewhat different criteria they use to decide what they believe and what they don't, and what's good enough to convince them. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those fields may be doing it wrong. They may have the wrong sort of criteria. Maybe they're being too open-minded, not skeptical enough. Maybe other fields are too skeptical. Maybe they should be more open-minded. Those are all great questions to ask about academia and how we should change it. But for the purpose of a book like mine, I can't reevaluate all that. I'm just going to take the academia as it's given, each field as it is, and say, what does that field think it knows best? What are you know its most straightforward, uh, robust results? And I'm going to just take them and apply them. And if we had a better academia that had better results, that had the more reliable, then I could say more in my book. But I have the academia that we have now, and I'm applying it. Mm -hmm. Very good. So let's uh, let's take, uh, well, one of the interesting things that I noticed uh, in the book here was that you say yourself that you probably have one in a thousand chance of, of being correct in this. Can you uh, kind of express uh, like elaborate on the thinking behind and perhaps the calculation and or arriving at that probability so what i'm really trying to refer to is the fact that if i make a rough forecast on a dozen or a hundred topics um i could be more likely correct than wrong on each one nevertheless if we take the conjunction of all of them together i'm going to be ridiculously no chance that i'm going to get them all exactly right so a book like mine does go over many, many topics and for each one makes a best guess about the conclusion. And I would definitely argue that if there's only two options, I think the option I chose is more likely than the other one. If there's N options, I definitely think the ch one I chose is much more likely than um, one over N and perhaps more likely than the other options. But that still gives me a high chance of being wrong on each one. And if we multiply that by all of them together, it's no way I could be right about all of them. And that's the key thing I'm trying to communicate here. But still, having 100 forecasts and being right about 70 of them could still be a useful guide to that world. If you don't know anything else about that world and somebody offers you a guide and they say 70% of these are probably right, you could look at that. And for each one, you could be somewhat skeptical and cautious and not rely too much on any one forecast. But now you've got an image of the world you're dealing with, which much me much more useful than having no idea what might happen. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And so, uh, you, but, but if someone says, why didn't you find it more tempting to write about something that you could be 
one in a hundred or one in ten correct rather than one in a thousand? Or is that just simply a, a derivative of the complexity and the ambitiousness of the work? It's mostly about the scope. So uh, some people did say I should just pick one thing and try to argue about that one thing in a whole book. So I might have decided to argue about wages falling to near subsistence level. Right. And that, that is a salient topic many people have focused on, and I could have tried to write a whole book to try. And it's a much more narrowly economistic kind of topic. Right. And in the end, you might believe that one claim. Uh, but I thought it was much more interesting to describe a whole world and uh, to give you a sense of this whole world. And it seems like the rice first cut. So I, I definitely think that there's a trade-off between a first cut analysis of something where you want to just be opportunistically and spread yourself out and just do the first thing in each area. And then when you finally specialize and go into very specifics, it should be after there's a lot of, of the more simple effort. So this is how it should go in intellectual progress, which is when nobody's ever looked at a subject at all, the first thing to do is to apply the simplest tools and just look at as many things as you can and get the first low-hanging fruit insights. And then as that gets hard, then you should specialize, people should specialize more if there's more people in the area, each focusing on a particular topic and trying to get that more carefully right. Uh, but nobody has written about this subject before. So it seemed to me the right thing to do was to um, do the first survey, <laughs> to just go out and look what's out there and get the most crude judgment about uh, the basics. And hopefully if other people come after me to work harder at it, they will look at more specific things and get into them in more detail, and, and maybe they'll say I was wrong, which would be fine. So, Robin, then paint to us that picture of that world that, that you're describing about. How is the M world look like? So I want to describe the world from the point of view of the emulations in their usual lives. Now, you could see the world from the point of view of humans who are far away from the center of attention, and you could see the center of the M world as humans would see it, but I'd rather tell you how the emulations would see it. So they live in enormous dense cities with far larger populations than your cities. So if you've ever said you couldn't live in a small town because there's not enough going on there, that's what they'd say about your cities. <laughs> Their cities are far more complex, and they see these world in virtual reality, but uh, it looks just as real as your world looks to you, to them. And in virtual reality, their cities are beautiful and dense, so they see gleaming spires and broad green boulevards, and everything's out in 3D because things can hang around in 3D because they don't really need structural support, so they're spread out in this lush, uh, huge area in 3D, and they can jump around in their city uh, just by deciding to go to a place. So they don't really need to spend much time in transportation. They could go walk the green boulevards if they want to take a break, but they don't take that many breaks because it's a world where they are working most of the time. So now think of people you know who are workaholics, people who are really good at their jobs and work really hard at those jobs. That's what the emulations are like because the typical emulation has a quality level or productivity level in their job that's comparable to typical billionaires, Nobel Prize winners, heads of state, Olympic gold medalists, that sort of thing. That's the typical... People who don't have a personal life. 
but that we celebrate, that we 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 grovel to be near them. We we would love to have any sort of association with them. We we have interviews with them, and they they grasp to tell you any sort of random thing about their personal life because we're so eager to know about little random things about their lives because these are the people we most admire, and they really are, as you say, focused on their their work. The thing that's making them famous is where they put all of their energy. I would even not call them workaholics. I would call them workamaniacs because I know a few of them, and I think they're a whole other level about work. Yes, yes, and so that's what the typical emulation is like—that sort of person. So they have these green boulevards, and they can take breaks where they go into spectacular virtual realities where they have fantasy novels played out and all sorts of things happen. But they aren't that interested in spending that much time in in leisure. They they really want to get things done. So their emotional energy and their attention is on. All of the things they're getting done now, because it's a world of subsistence, we know pretty much what they're spending their time on. It's producing the minimum required for subsistence. So most of the jobs surround making computer hardware, making it better, repairing it, energy, cooling, structural support, communication, security, you know, protection. Uh, these are the things that most of their jobs are spent doing. They're really good at these jobs. They're spending most of the time on it. They also, they of course have very productive teams, not just individuals and firms. They are, they are in teams that they've been with most of their life. So, for an M, when there's a new job opportunity, they don't desert their previous associates. They just make a new copy who who pursues the new opportunity, but the old one stays. So, if you have an associate and you have a productive work team, you know that you're always going to stay together and you're going to be together until you retire. Now, the M's do have to retire eventually because. Uh, even though they can be immortal, they aren't productive forever. That is, their their minds slowly become more fragile and less adaptive, and eventually younger versions of them are more competitive, and so they must retire. And when they retire, they retire to a slower speed. Uh, mo- the typical emulation runs roughly a thousand times human speed, and so that means if their economy doubles roughly every month, as I estimate, still that's a whole subjective century for them. So their world is actually changing more slowly to them than your world changes for you. So it's a more stable world. It's a world where they eventually retire but can have an indefinite retirement that mainly just depends on the stability of the entire civilization. So all the retirees together with the humans have a common interest in promoting the civilization stability. And in addition to having teams they like and probably lovers and and you know wives or, or husbands that they feel close to, they have a whole new unit of social uh, association that is valuable to them, which is the unit of the clan of all the same copies who came from the same original human. So these people are more like each other than identical twins are today, definitely than family members. They don't like to see each other in the flesh around them all the time, but they know they have this unit available for finance and for law, for politics. It can give them advice about what to do. And all these other copies of them around them really tell them what their future is going to be like. So they know pretty much what their life is going to be like because there are these other slightly older versions of them around that have the same kind of job with the same kind of spouse in the same kind of city. <laughs> and they see how that life plays out. So they don't really get blindsided by relationships that suddenly go sour after a certain point. They kind of know that that would be coming and they know to pick somebody else. Similarly for careers. So much less regret and and you know, being terribly unhappy later in life because you just made choices you just didn't understand would go wrong. They know the consequences of those choices. Very interesting. So uh, it's an interesting point of view because, as you said, you don't tell the, you don't situate it from the point of view of humanity, but rather from the point of view of M's. 
and I wonder, is there an assessment, like a little bit of a side note, but I think it's an important, is that a, a judgment that humanity would be more on the sidelines in the future? What's well, definitely one of my conclusions. Uh, you could say it's a judgment to the extent that I don't seem outraged or offended by it. Uh, so I, I make the analogy with the next age of emulations to the previous three ages of industry, farming, and foraging. So I say history is a sequence of ages with very sudden transitions between the ages. During each age, there's relatively steady growth. And then at the transition boundary, suddenly growth rates go up by a factor of 50 or more. And then there's a new stable growth rate. So I see history as these discrete ages. And I notice that the previous ages when they were replaced by a new age, they weren't entirely replaced, but just people who continued with the old ways were marginalized. They were pushed to the side. So when farming showed up, there were still foragers off on the margins of the world. And when industry showed up, there's still subsistence farmers and still some foragers out there in the world. But it's definitely true that the center of activity and attention and, and the drive and change in history is by the people who are filled with the new age and way of doing things. So by analogy, I'd say... The MA era shows up, humans can move into the M world, that is, they can become scanned and become an emulation, and many will, those who just say, no, I don't want to make that transition, just like many subsistence farmers says, no, I don't want to live to the city and work in a factory, I want to stay in my subsistence farm. They can, but they, they are no longer the center of the world, and they are no longer driving things, and they have to accept they've been somewhat displaced. They can have a comfortable uh, existence on the margin, and I basically would say that the humans must retire and they can have a comfortable retirement if they have sufficient sharing and insurance arrangements so that they have sufficient assets. Collectively, the humans own this entire world at the start. So if the economy doubles every month, their assets double every month. So collectively, humans can get rich very fast and have a very comfortable retirement. But one, they need to make sure they have sufficient sharing arrangements in order for that comfort to be realized. And second, they have to know that even if they're comfortable retirees, they're not running the show anymore. Just like somebody who's a senior executive in a corporation when they retire, they know they can have a comfortable retirement, but they lose on not running the show. I see. Now, one of the assumptions, of course, that the M's would be the primary and not, for example, artificial intelligence is one of the two starting is. Uh, presumptions or assumptions that you shared with us, and that is the fact that you think that the mind uploading process uh, would be much faster than, for example, artificial intelligence uh, through, let's say, one of the possible paths, which is, let's say, machine learning, for example. And and in your estimate, uh, the, there's a much higher probability that M's would be much faster than, than machine learning or other versions of, uh, let's say, uh, human, non-human derived AI. Well, there's, there's two things to say. The first is just the future is important enough that we should have a lot of different scenarios explored. And so if there's a, if it's worth having a hundred different books on the future, it's worth having a book on each scenario that has at least a 1% chance. So I think this scenario at least meets the 1% chance threshold. There aren't that many other things that seem more plausible than it. The second argument is then, well, if we want to talk about the relative chance among these 100 most likely things, I would say we the track record is one of the most relevant data points. And we would say, well, what's the track record of each of these technologies? So for the emulation, I'd say, well, we, we don't have any direct emulations yet, and we won't until they're nearly feasible. But we have three key technologies, and we can track those technologies. And if we track those technologies, they look roughly on 
track to reach this ability sometime in the next century or so. That's the rough guess for the emulation technology. If we look at ordinary artificial intelligence and ask, well, what's the track record there? My experience is that when I've asked AI researchers who've been in a field for at least 20 years, how far have we come in your subfield in the last 20 years? As a percentage of human level abilities, they say we've come five to 10% of the way with no noticeable acceleration. So that typical answer says two to four centuries. And that would be a reason to think emulations would come first. But it's a weak reason. There's a lot we don't understand. But again, the, the really the only all I really need is to say, look, this is a scenario that has a high enough chance that it's worth analyzing. And we should analyze a lot of scenarios. Yeah, I totally agree with you on the first argument. On as per the second argument, I just wanted to bring it to our attention because my impressions are actually rather different, and I thought it's it's a point worth just mentioning. Uh, you see, and for two things, first, it's notable that you think that AI is. Uh, uh, two to four centuries away. Uh, my impression, uh, personally, and and the, the the service that I that I've looked at, generally say that while there's a skepticism and wide uh, sort of span time span from many experts from let's say five years or or closer from people like Ben Gerso, for example, uh, or much, much later from, let's to say, 80 years from now, the vast majority of sort of AI experts kind of cluster within 25 to 40 year range, sort of mid-century. That's at least my I, I agree with that, that that is, in fact, the result of surveys. And so the, the way I want to pose the question is, what kind of question, if we ask which people do we expect to get the most informative or accurate answer? That is, we could, of course, just survey everybody and ask them when what they think will happen. Uh, but what we'd like to do is survey the people who know the most about a topic and try to focus them on answering the question that they would know the most about. So, uh, yes, we might want to focus on who would know the most about AI future. You might say, well, okay, AI researchers might be one, although other people might know something. But then you might say, okay, for each AI researcher, mostly they're really tracking a particular sub area of AI research. They're not tracking all of the different areas of research. And they are certainly not, you know, studying history in terms of asking how fast have things been going and, and how, you know, what what's the overall rates of progress in various fields. They basically, they showed up in a particular field, they got their degree there, they've been doing the research, and they know best what's been happening in their field. And in particular, they know best what's been happening in their field compared to what will happen. So I think, the most reliable data we can get out of researchers is to ask them only about their field and only about, in particular, what they have seen in their field. And they don't necessarily have any particular insight into how the future of the field is about so to you're change. So you there's a bias in those, in those results, yes. basically. Uh, and I think it related to what I've called near-far theory or construal level theory. That is, when you look at the details of the past, you are anchored on many concrete details. You are less indulging sort of abstract theories that you have overly high confidence in, and you're more noticing all the trouble and the constraint and all the, the messy things that get in the way. And when you look to the future of the entire field, you're sort of more thinking at this very abstract level about the overall fundamental possibility of it and, you know, the optimism of that. And, and you're less noticing all the little problems that get in the way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because, again, I agree with that. But relative to to the, the the pace of progress in AI, you know, I've interviewed Randall Kunick, who said mind uploading is no longer science fiction, but I've also interviewed people like uh, Miguel Nicolelis 
and Ronald C. Curell, who said uh, the singularity is baloney and the brain cannot be simulated uh, by a normal Turing machine because it's analog and they even have a whole book called The Relativistic Theory of Mind and, and so on and so on. Uh, and my personal impression is that out of those fields, uh, let's say life extension, uh, AI through machine learning and many other alternatives and mind uploading, my personal impression after a couple hundred interviews is that the, 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 the one that we're moving at the slowest pace right now is the path towards mind uploading. That's my personal impression and that the, the, the path that we know least of. So yeah, you have the hardware things that you mentioned, but there's a lot more on the science there that I think we're missing. And I think, why don't we speak about the bias in that field, the same bias that we have in the AI field? Why are we not nearsighting uh, this field? So there isn't a field of mind uploading yet, nor will there be for a long time. What there are, are the three technology fields. Well, we have the human brain simulation, the former blue brain project. But there are the three technologies we need and those three technologies aren't ready to be put together into mind uploading yet. And if you look at those three technologies, uh, they aren't really the sort of thing that you can have exciting demos of or exciting you know, interview conversations about the potential because it, the potential is only there when you put the three together. So first of all, there's just computer hardware. You, of course, know that computer hardware is advancing, but computer hardware advancing is driving both fields, really. So you can't be differentially optimistic about computer hardware advancing with respect to these two possibilities. It, computer hardware getting harder to advance slows down both of them <laughs> and exciting possibilities for advancement speeds up both of them. So that's uh, a wash. Then there is um, scanning of brains. And honestly, it's a very small field, people who focus on actually scanning brains and there's not that much near-term excitement. So it wouldn't make much sense for you to interview someone who's just talking about the details of brain scanning by itself because nobody cares about that until you connect it to this longer-term potential. But of course, most of the people doing brain scanning aren't focused on that potential and probably in their professional interest to poo-poo it because it makes them sound crazy, <laughs> right? Yeah, but, but the recent uh, human brain project in Europe has almost collapsed. Henry Macron was taken off the project. There were hundreds of scientists that protested it. Then I've had notable people like Noam Chomsky and Marvin Minsky, who both of them said that that's a waste of time. And, money. I, and I might agree with them that it's again, I don't think it's time to do that yet. <laughs> uh, that is, the third technology is modeling particular brain cells. So we need three technologies, lots of cheap, fast computers, brain scans, and models of particular brain cells. So the third, that's the most sciencey of the three. That's the thing that requires most fundamental advancement. But it doesn't require that you understand the large-scale organization. Most of those brain projects are about the larger-scale organization of the brain. And the whole point of brain uploading is that you don't need to understand the larger organization in order to make it work. You need to understand how individual cells work and that's a third technology area that's been progressing. But again, the people who are studying individual brain cells, they are not focused on this larger scale possibility. They're in the mess of the brain cells. So it comes down to really, in the end, how complicated are brain cells relative to brains? <laughs> that is, there's these two levels of organization. The brain is this whole complicated structure built out of cells, and then each cell is complicated. And there's separate areas of research trying to pursue these things. You know. It could, in principle, be that brain cells are, in fact, so enormously complicated that they are more complicated than brain, even if we just focus on the parts of them that do signal processing. So, so if you look at a muscle cell, for example, any cell like a muscle cell is enormously complicated, but the parts of it that do the muscle thing are actually really simple.
right? And that's also true for bone cells. The bone cells are enormously complicated, but the part of a bone cell that does the bone thing is really simple. So we don't know about how complicated the parts of a brain cell is that just does the signal processing. It could be that it's actually pretty simple, or it could be that it's ridiculously complicated. But the, the question is how complicated relative to understanding an entire brain, because brains really do look pretty complicated and in a way that you, you can't like assume most of it's irrelevant noise. Right. And, and my, my point here was not to say this is likely or this is not likely, but rather to bring attention to the fact how we kind of perceive things differently. Right. And you, in terms of pace and in terms of most likelihood developments and in terms of where we're making progress. And I am the first one to admit I have so many biases that I'm aware and that I'm not aware of that I can't even. But it's definitely to. true that ordinary artificial intelligence has a lot more newsworthy items to talk about. There's a lot more things happening. There's companies doing it. There's, you know, AlphaGo and there's Watson and there's all sorts of concrete demonstrations and they're companies that are based on making near-term progress with self-driving cars and things like that. So if you want to talk about things that people are doing and near-term progress and events and short-term um, change that's going to be a result, for, of course you want to be talking about artificial intelligence. This brain emulation stuff is just a sideline for, from the point of view of what interesting things people are doing today that you want to talk to them about and what is about to happen in the next few years in terms of key developments. Yes, all the action is over in ordinary AI. Happy to admit that. But there are these three technologies that are going on in the background. And if they all reach good enough levels at some point, the observation is then something remarkable will be possible. And that could happen before this other AI progress reaches the level of human level abilities. Okay, very well. So let's, let's touch a bit on the three things that you have in the subtitle, which is to say work, love, and life. Uh, and which kind of would give kind of meat and 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 sort of it would in, expand on the vision that you started sharing with us. So let's start with work. And perhaps one of the interesting things or the important things about work is, of course, wages. So walk us through the wages argument and then expand from that onwards on the work vision that you have for the M economy. So the key fact about this world or any world of robots is that it's possible to make more robots really fast in factories. So we can probably double the amount of stuff we make in factories roughly every month just using ordinary technologies today. So if once you can substitute for humans using a thing you make in a factory, you can just make a lot of those things. And that's the key thing that drives wages down. As long as you can create the supply faster than the demand can grow, then the equilibrium wage has to fall. And the only place it can stop is near subsistence level. So that's just the iron economic argument saying without some other global coordination intervention laws to prevent it, wages would fall to subsistence level with a vast increase of population, a vast large number. So the reason... And population. And population, right. right. So, right. exactly. Human so it's not that these are unproductive creatures from the point of view of how smart they are or how hardworking are, quite the opposite. It's just there are so many of them that it's harder to find useful things for them to do. Uh, they, you know, if you had, if you kept to a few of them, they could each have a pivotal, important role in the world and therefore be paid a lot because they made a huge difference. When you have so many of them, it's hard for any one of them to make that much of a difference. So, but they are still working very hard. So wages fall to near subsistence. And now that's true for all the professions. So today, you know, janitors make a lot less than lawyers, et cetera. 
And there's a huge variance in wages because some people are far more productive than others because there's a limited number of us. With thems, lawyers make the same as janitors. They all make about the same. There'll be corrections for paying for their training time or some special, you know, exclusive access or something to have, but for the mostly they earn about the same. Uh, as again, we talked about, there's a high selection for the very best. So probably most Ms are copies of the few hundred most productive humans and that are most suitable for this world. So it's a very high degree of selectivity and productivity. That's why, as we said, they are not just workaholics, they're work obsessed and really good at their work. And that's most of them. And they, they spend most of their time focused and their emotional energy is on work. So work is really essential to their life, which is why it comes first in the list. Uh, but it's a, it's a diverse economy again. So we, we don't go back to subsistence farming or something where everybody does the same little thing. I'd say specialization, there are different industries, there are large organizations still, so it matters climbing the corporate hierarchy, there's even larger corporate hierarchies to climb. And there's a now a new way in which work and culture splits, which is by speed. So because emulations can run at different speeds, uh, they do, and the speed for any one M on a job depends on what speed is best fit for that job. So if you're managing a physical system like a super tanker, you can be really slow because you don't have to react very fast. If you're managing a uh, nano factory, you maybe need to be much faster. So jobs and bosses can run faster than their subordinates, and workers will probably run slower on the job than they run in leisure, so they can be back and ready for work immediately, subjectively, from the point of view of their clients. Uh, and this means there's a big split in terms of speeds. And not only at, at the office, there are these fast workers around and slow workers around, but also more culturally. And this is a major way in which the whole M world splits culturally. If, if you have you know, a culture where music fashion changes subjectively every few years, you know, another M culture that's running a thousand times faster uh, that would be every thousand years. And to them, that would be intolerably slow. So they would just pick different music fashions and have them very much more quickly than these slow people could keep up with. So various styles of clothing and music and other things would just fragment by speed. And that would make these different speeds really a class hierarchy. So it really is quite literally a class hierarchy because the higher speed M's are just higher status in so many obvious ways. And they, they would clump into the same speed, so it's not even evenly spread across speeds. It's going to be spread, you know, split into these clumps of speeds. And the, within each clump, they'll have a coherent culture, and they can interact with each other. And at different speeds, they will just have different cultures and different economic value. Everybody will know that the faster ones are worth more. They, it costs more to make them. They get more done, and they get premium locations. They're at the center of cities, and they pay extra for it. And so uh, there's a really class hierarchy spread out, not just in terms of where you work and who you associate with and what, how you dress and what music you like, but also just where you sit physically in the cities and even where in the company you sit. Now, let me just shift up the spotlight uh, of the focus here for a second. Now, what happens to humanity in the meantime? So the M economy may double roughly every month, and I'm only willing to project it through roughly as many doublings as we've seen in the last few eras of industry farming and foraging. And that means I can't really project it more than a year or two before I have to say, I don't know what happens next. So humans would only see a year or two of subjective experience, even though the emulations would, could see thousands of years of experience. So there's plenty of time for enormous cultural change within the emulations, but not for the humans. So for the humans, it's a very simple picture. All of a sudden, it's dramatic, but simple. All of a sudden, they all lose their jobs. 
all of a sudden their investments go through the roof and then it's over. There isn't time culturally to adapt. Uh, there's time to starve. So if they don't have sufficient insurance or sharing arrangements, they're in trouble, but collectively they've got plenty of assets to help everyone if they do. And so one of the very first questions is who ends up with sufficient insuring and sharing so that they don't starve. And then for those that don't starve, there's the, what will I do with my vast wealth as it doubles every month when I'm retired? And that's about it. Because, well, that's about it, but there's an yes, awful there is lot, a lot of there. it that's happening, right? And it's simple in a way, but 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 it's very profoundly radical. So let's let's try and unpack that a little bit here. Okay, so you said the population of M explodes, which is why I wanted to be crystal clear that we're talking about M population. But we already have, by that time, let's say you're talking about a century from now, where it's going to be maybe, let's say passively or conservatively around eight to nine billion at least a range give or take a few billion that's still an awful lot of people so what happens to us we have the explosion of the population of amps we have the collapse of the wage to the subsistence wage for amps right. not for humans, well below human subsistence. which may be way right. below exactly what happens to those eight or nine billion people us well again and of course, we know most of them don't have retirement fund, don't have investment, uh, basically live on a subsistence level day to day, uh, hand to mouth kind of a principle all over the world. That's the default. Yes, that's mode. right. So we may have many decades up to a century to warn people about trying to uh, adapt and prepare for this scenario. And some of them will and some of them won't. And then when it actually happens, there'll come the moment of truth. All of a sudden, people lose their wages, and then do they or don't they have access to assets, insurance, sharing arrangements, charity, however we want to call it, there needs some source. Hold on, hold on one second. However we want to call it, is that not exactly what we call technological unemployment? I'm happy to use that word. I, I don't mind at all. Uh, yes, uh, due to a technology, everybody becomes unemployed. <laughs> it's quite literal. Uh, yes. but. Collectively, all the humans own basically everything in this new economy, and that wealth goes through the roof. For the time, for for a time, probably short time, because productivity and relative prices and asset value would shift dramatically. So, so the economy doubles every month. You know, the M investors might have their assets doubling every three and a half weeks. Maybe the humans have their assets doubling every four and a half weeks, so that slowly the human assets are a declining fraction of the overall assets, but still their assets are growing very rapidly. And so there's a lot to own. And collectively, the humans are still very rich, very fast. You mean that 1% or 2% that actually Well, owns that is assets. the question. Again, I, as I say, I certainly warn and suggest that people look ahead and prepare for a scenario like this. And how there's preparations possible at all different scales, and you should probably try them at all different scales. So at a very individual scale, you might try to save or purchase insurance or agree to share, say, within your family or within your circle of friends, uh, or teach your children and grandchildren to have the habit of doing these things because the problem may be theirs and not yours. Uh, at larger scales, uh, a firm could commit, commit to sharing among its employees employees or ex-employees or a town or a city or a state or a nation could 
choose some sort of sharing arrangements within the scope it has control over. But there's a key point, which is the M world will probably be very concentrated and unequal geographically. So if in Rhodesia, you decide to have a sharing arrangement of everybody in Rhodesia and the M world doesn't actually have much of a footprint in Rhodesia, your sharing arrangement may not be much use. You're sharing all of your unemployment with each other, which isn't much to share. You'll need to set up some sort of sharing arrangement that has a chunk of a part of the thing that's growing, which is this M economy, which you don't ahead of time know where it's going to be exactly. So if you're going to set up some sort of basic income or insurance or sharing arrangements, it needs to be global enough that has a substantial chance of having a chunk of whatever it is that does grow in this new world. So it's not enough for just you and your family to share with each other if all of you are going to be unemployed. Uh, this is why, of course, an insurance contract with an insurance company might be a straight, very straightforward and an ideal solution where you address this particular problem very directly and try to Provided they don't go. Yes, of course. Too. And you should pay attention to that. Because most of them will probably. Unless they have shown you that they have reinsured their risk with the sort of assets that are relevant here. Because well, this is true for most any large insurance company. If you have buy insurance against a hurricane, for example, uh, you know, the insurance company makes money until all of a sudden it has to pay out enormously more than it has, and then it goes bust unless it has reinsurance. And this is why you want to pay attention to the degree of reassurance that your insurance provider has. Uh, but again, individuals could try to buy individual insurance. Firms might buy insurance for their employees. Cities or nations might try to set up insurance arrangements. But there's the risk that they will set up some sort of local sharing arrangement instead of a real insurance based on the sort of global assets that are necessary to actually insure against the risk. But we do have many decades, perhaps, to warn and prepare. But as you suggest, people have often been given decades in advance to warn and prepare for something that they have not, in fact, prepared for. Right. And, and your book does a good public service uh, in, for that purpose in particular, actually, to warn and to send out that message, or at least the, that possibility that we should consider, be it personally, be it uh, collectively, and perhaps at all levels, as you just said. Now, let me just uh, bring in another uh, two points here with, with respect to work. One is, uh, okay, so we have the collapse uh, of the wage to subsistence levels. Where's the demand coming from? Because, I mean, for the GDP to keep doubling, you don't only need supply, because if supply is oversupplied, you said then prices keep doubling, but you also need to have growth of demand. So where's the growth of demand coming from? There's two sources of demand, one that's increasing and one that's declining, as or at least as a relative fraction. The increasing source of demand is the subsistence M economy itself. In order to subsist, M's need computer hardware, energy cooling, as we said before. If the but let's say those are just the very basics minimum for But survival. in a subsistence economy, that's where most of the spending goes. So if you think of a thousand years ago, a subsistence farming economy, it was doubling every thousand years, but still it was near a subsistence. And so most of the effort was sent into producing the minimum they needed to exist. Food, clothing, heat, shelter a bit of transportation to move things around. That's where most of the effort was spent a thousand years ago because it was a nearly subsistence economy. 
but very slow growth though. Is that going to be the same case with very fast growth? Have a subsistence economy with slow or fast growth. So the farming economy grew much faster than the forage economy, which was also a subsistence economy. Foragers doubled roughly every quarter million years, whereas farmers doubled roughly every thousand years. So farmers were growing much, much faster. But the key point was they still weren't growing fast enough to, to allow individual per person wealth to increase. The, the key relative parameter is the growth rate of the economy relative to the growth rate of the population. And there was lack of surplus, right? Which capitalism is all about that surplus, right? It's the first time when we had the industrial revolution that growing number of surpluses were being produced. The, the surplus of industry was the idea that we grew the wealth faster than we grew the population. So the wealth per person was increasing. Of course, there were capitalists a thousand years ago. There were people who owned land and it didn't work, and they, they took a fraction of income, and, and there was a small minority of wealthy people who spent a, a fraction of the income. But the typical person wasn't benefiting from that. They were basically at a subsistence wage. So so that's one part of the demand, you said. Where is the, the other Well, the other part, part the that's declining from? is the humans themselves. So these humans who have this wealth doubling every month, they are... One of the reasons their wealth will decline is they won't save it all. They will spend some of it because they will uh, be rich and comfortable and feel like spending. So the humans will buy whatever they want, and then the M economy will serve that demand because they've got the money to spend. So the M's, because the humans own stock and real estate and patents and other things that the M economy needs to do things, then the humans can buy yachts and starships and uh, you know mansions and whatever else it is the humans want that can be built really fast. Now, the key point is because the economy doubles every month, there's a huge premium on things that can be done fast. Uh, something that takes many years to make, you won't bother. Now, okay, great. So we'll leave that as it is. Now let's talk about uh, another little thing here, uh, which is the, the the multiplication or the copying or the population explosion of amps. So let's say someone says, well, look at Robin Hanson, a very good economist, very good with respect to decision markets. Uh, he deserves to have an M, of course, and he deserves to have many M's. Someone else would say, well, but you only need one of him. You don't need many because he's not good for janitor janitorial duty. He's not good for military duty. He's not good for firefighter, for ambulance and all those things. And and therefore, if you, you cannot just multiply or copy the same 1,000 people, as you say in the book, because... Uh, you would end up with the same kind of uh, biases and the same stupidity multiplied by a hundred. In other words, a thousand Robin Hansons are not a thousand times more smarter than a single Robin Hanson, but they're just as smart as one. And uh, that arguably the person would say the uh, intelligence or the breakthrough or progress comes from the diversity that we right now have. So we only need one copy of Robin Hanson. You're pointing to the issue of diversity in the supply of labor. Now, if we just stack back, first of all, just look at all products in general. We notice that in most product markets, uh, most of the products are supplied by a small number of suppliers. That is, for toasters or most anything else that we buy in the world, we actually value only a modest amount of diversity. Mostly we buy from the same repeat small number of suppliers. So that shows for most product markets, there's a relatively low demand for diversity. Right. But right now we live in the industrial re uh, uh, revolution world where we have homogeneity of the 
products. Whereas in the post-industrial world, supposedly, we would have perfect customization of products for each consumer. I think it more goes the other way, actually. Uh, that is, product diversity and behavioral diversity has actually been increasing substantially during the industrial era. Uh, the early industrial revolution was focused on making very small number of very standardized products. And over time, we've actually spent a lot of our increased wealth not on more bigger products, but on more product variety. And so today, in fact, we have far more mass customization than mass production. And that's been a trend over the last century or so. But it, that trend is mainly, I claim, because of our increasing wealth. When we're rich enough, we don't want a really huge house or a really huge car or a really huge TV. We or even really, you know, huge clothes. What we want is a lot of different variety in these things, and that's how we've spent our wealth. But the M's go back to being poor, and so product variety is much less appealing to a poor M. They basically want... It's all about functionality. They, they want yeah. more, the minimum they need to survive. So they would tolerate a lot more commonality, also because in virtual reality, things can easily be varied at very cheaply. So they're probably sitting on very standardized server racks. The actual computer server they're sitting on looks the same rack and the same CPU, et cetera. But in virtual reality, their house is decorated differently. The clothes are different and the music they listen to can be different. And so they can enjoy an enormous variety in their personal life, uh, even if they're physically they, they have very similar uh, products and services. And what about the, the problem or the p potential problem for, let's say, groupthink and sort of self-enforcement? So, so I just said this about product varieties, products in general. Now let's look at labor markets in particular. So uh, in particular in labor markets, it definitely seems like today most buyers of labor markets are looking for more homogeneity and less variety than the labor market actually supplies. Most employers complain far more about you know, low quality workers who don't have the standard look and feel than they do about not getting enough variety. So there's a huge demand for people who go from certain standard universities or standard management consultants, which work their way to produce very standardized human products. You know, graduates from Harvard, graduates from McKinsey, et cetera. These people are created to be very standardized and that's what the labor market seems to mostly want. In general, we give a lot of lip service to creativity, but in fact, labor markets seem to not value creativity very much in most fields. Now, there are exceptions like advertising or something like that. And in fact, schools seem to go out of their way to crush creativity, and they do a successful job of it. And that's partly because schools want creativity crushed. Uh, we could talk more about that, but that's somewhat off topic. But in fact, the ordinary labor markets don't seem to value. So we have a lot of literature about team productivity. And we know that variety within teams is mostly a bad idea when it's about uh, gender or ethnicity or age or even personality types. The kind of variety that's actually useful within a team for productivity is variety in terms of disciplinary skills and styles of thinking. So uh, M World, therefore, would like to have on most work teams a variety of disciplinary skills and a variety of styles of thinking because that can be useful inputs into making decisions. But for most other dimensions, they actually don't want much variety, which is how our actual work world today works too. We don't actually go out of our way to produce variety on most work teams. On most of the parameters, we actually go out of our way to do the opposite. Most firms, for example, who have a distinctive corporate culture end up selecting a certain kind of employee that fits that corporate culture. It works better to have a whole firm of people who have the style where they like the corporate culture and it fits their personality style, et cetera. And we fragment by different firms, which have these different cultures and these different kinds of people working for them. So basically what you're saying is that we would have, and correct me if I'm wrong, we would have a lot more kind of homogeneous world, at least on the outset, and there, then there may be a divergence. But because 
it would be, let's say, the top 1,000 most uh, uh, proficient and successful people who would be the, the original M's. And then those would might multiply in the M world and perhaps have some divergence. But yet at the outset, you say those would be mostly, mostly male. Those would be mostly around the 50 uh, years of age or so, which is the highest productivity age. Uh, and and not so many females uh, and not so many, let's say, gay or lesbian or transsexuals. Th those would be underrepresented. So I, I actually go to quite some detail to try to pick out particular features that I can predict what they'll be more or less of. So I, I go through these one at a time quite carefully. So I definitely say that uh, peak... But that's the effect. I'm just like in the interest Peak of age is an effect. Uh, I agree with that. Gender is much less clear. I predict there'll be some imbalance in gender, but I'm much less confident about which direction it'll go. Which, whichever direction it'll go, you'll be unhappy if you wanted an equal gender balance. It will probably be unequal, but I don't know if it'll be men or if it'll be women. I, in fact, I specifically say that uh, for in terms of lesbians and gays, in our world, lesbians earn higher wages than you might expect given other things you know about them, and gays earn less. And that's a reason to expect more lesbians and less gays. Uh, and then I go... Yeah, I don't expect an equal world. I just expect a world which would be even more diversified than what we have today. Uh, and and so, in other words, the, if we're struggling to to sustain the categories of male and female as it is right now in our world, I would imagine those would be totally obsolete in the M world. So evolution and history has been a combination of, along some dimensions, reduced diversity, and on the other dimensions, increased diversity. So if you look at, say, the Cambrian explosion of animals into the world, or if you look at uh, the explosion of you know, industrial uh, firms and practices in, in our world today, uh, you see both in different dimensions. So most animals came from a small number of previous species, uh, very unrepresentative, but then those animals diversified and spread out and filled many different niches in the world. However, if you looked inside them, they were really all came from a small number of basic body plans that were within a larger variety previously. Similarly today, uh, at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we have this huge diversity of cultures around the world. And we've had a great winnowing and reduction of cultural diversity, uh, much fewer languages, much fewer uh, ethnic backgrounds, much fewer you know, styles of music, et cetera. Within the dominant uh, languages and cultures within the Industrial Revolution, of course, we produced a lot more diversity within them. So within, say, English-style um, culture. We now have a vast variety of different kinds of novels and different kinds of music and different kinds of other things, but it's still all within that particular cultural background and many other languages and cultures really have been pushed to the side and, and uh, shunted. So, and this is what we should expect as a robust long-term feature of evolution. Basically, different groups compete. The winning ones push out the losing ones, but then within the winning one, there ends up creating more diversity and variety because as it fragments and spreads out to fill different niches. And humanity may largely be on the losing side. Well, humanity is the origin or of this new... Unable to subsist, and you even said famine right. and so things A like lot that. comes down to where you put your identity. So Paul Graham has the famous essay on keeping your identity small, but uh, think a thousand years ago, a subsistence farmer, and you told them the industrial world's coming. And when it comes, then industry will spread and subsistence farming will be pushed to the margins. Now, if you said to yourself, I am intrinsically a subsistence farmer, 
and my children are as well, then you say, I and my children are going to be losing and pushed to the side because we are losing out to industry. If you said to yourself, I am not intrinsically a farmer, I am intrinsically a human who could be a farmer or an industrialist, these are all possibilities for me and my children, then you don't think of yourself per se as a loser. You say, ah, the winds of are changing and I should go with the winds and become an industrialist. I should get myself or my children to move to the city and work in a factory and try to adopt the new ways. So what you're saying is people should become M's, but if they're not among those 1,000 people who have the qualities most desired or most profitable within the M realm, as the vast majority of people would be not, well, then how do they migrate and or survive even if they do that migration within the, the realm of M? So if the emulation economy grows as fast as I'm saying, there'll still be plenty of room for those other marginal M's. They're just a small fraction, but they can still be a large number. So you can be one human or you can be 10 M's. And the fact that you have 10 M's means that there are 10 times as many of you as in M's as there are in humans. But for somebody else, there might be 10,000 or 10 million. Relative to them, you're a smaller fraction, but there's still more of you there. How do you survive if you're not competitive compared to the other M? Well, first of all, if you start out as a human, you just start out with some initial wealth and you can move that wealth over into the M world. So wealth. But most of humanity doesn't have any wealth. We talked Well, that's about the question that, right? of what, what will happen when the transition occurs. How many people will have sufficient wealth at that point? But wealth that's sufficient to have a human survive at a barely subsistence level for a human is probably enough to make very rich M's. And many of them too. So instead of being a subsistence level human, barely eking it out in the human world, you could have a dozen or several dozen M's living a life of luxury retirement as M's. And that's an option. I hope it's an option because that would make it less... I mean, I, I don't make it doesn't make it more appealing, but it makes it less traumatic because, of course, the concern is that that wouldn't be the case, that people who are unable to, to survive in the real world or in the analog world are possibly or many of them are possibly going to be unable to survive and or compete in the realm of M. And therefore, they may end up facing erasure or deletion. That brings us to the question of inequality among M's or especially retirees. And it's much less of an all or nothing thing for M's. So for us, if you don't have enough money when you retire, you starve and you're no longer there. It's either alive or dead. It's very binary. If you become an M, not only can you, you know, for a money that would just barely make you just survive as a human, you could have a luxurious life as an M retiree. As a human speed M retiree, you have a choice of different speeds. So I estimate that there's a linear relationship between cost and speed that goes up to a million times faster than human and down to a billion times slower than human. So now you say, ah, what if I don't even have enough money to run as a human speed M? Well, you say, fine, how much do you have? I have only 10% as much. And you say, fine, you get to run as a 10% speed M. Done. <laughs> <laughs> And that can just be the end of it. Because again, you can go all the way down to a billion times slower than human speed. And now we have to say, yes, but I don't want to run slow. I'd like to run fast. And now the question is, how much sympathy do we have at that point? So we, we have strong sympathy about whether you exist or not. Price mechanism resolves all societal uh, issues and troubles that we have. It's a fantastic The tool. issue is more, I think, what dimensions of envy and charity will there be? And they change here. So I think I'm not claiming envy and charity go away but I saying they do need to adapt to the new circumstances of this world. 
They definitely do, yeah. In our world, we mostly have envy and charity along the axis of individual income. Okay. However, there are other dimensions of inequality that we don't have much envy about, and therefore we don't actually have much charity about. So a thousand years ago, some of us, there our ancestors, they ended up having far more descendants today than others. If you took each of us and went back to our ancestor from a, a representative ancestor from a thousand years ago, some of us may only have five descendants and some may have 500. That's an enormous degree of inequality, but we almost never talk about it. We almost never care about it. There's very little urge to transfer from the people who have 500 descendants to the people who have five. It's just not an issue for us. In fact, I would say most of our envy and charity is within the dimension of between the families of a nation at the same time. We have very little concern socially about inequality within other people's families. We think those families should deal with it. We have very little concern really about inequality between nations. And we certainly have very little concern about inequality across time. So it's mostly about between the families of a nation at a time. That's where most of our envy is, and that's where most of our charities, that's where most of our discussion is. But that, that issue is much less relevant in the age of M among the emulations, at least. Mm -hmm. We have very little time to, to go further into this, too, because there's so much more left to cover. So um, let me just bring a couple of other things. Uh, in terms of retiring, why do we have to retire people? Yes, you said that, that uh, mental flexibility diminishes in time, but... Why don't we just restore ourselves to a younger backup version of ourselves rather than go into retirement? That's what I mean by retire. That is, when you make a new copy of yourself and it exists for a month or a year, at some point, it may start to think of itself as a different person. And if it was erased and we went back to the original version, it might think of itself as being lost. At that point, it might rather continue to retire or it will be very stressed. So because retiring slow is so cheap, if there's any slight degree of stress about ending, we say, oh, you don't have to end. You can just retire slow and with all the stress and problems gone. For emulations, we're okay with just ending. Yeah, a lot of them will just end. And that will probably be the default, say, for li living only an hour since you're split away. If you split me off for an hour, I do an hour-long task. Do I need that that copy to last forever in retirement? I might go, no, nah, that's just not even worth the bother. Don't, don't even bother. I can't, you know, all those copies out there, there'll be so many of them. They'll be so similar to each other. It's just not worth it. But, but if they last for a month or a year or 10 years, then they'll start to see themselves as a distinct creature for whom they care about their personal future trajectory, and then we'll offer them retirement. Now, the, the last point I want to bring on the economy here is that a point that was brought by Carl Schroeder in one of my previous interviews, and that's to say, and he was not referring to GM economy, but in, in general, uh, but I'm just going to import and, and kind of supply a response if possible. Um, so he's saying when you have a system and you have, because your claim is that the growth of GDP of the M economy would go along Moore's law pretty much. Actually, no, I don't think I claim that. You don't? Okay. Tell me, tell me, because that was my impression, which is one of the reasons why it's kind of going so, and I even took a, I didn't took an exact reference from the book, but anyway, that was my impression for sure. So because it was doubling so fast. So please explain that. So um, if Moore's law were just some absolute thing that, you know, computers got twice as cheap every two years, then once emulation show up and they're mainly built out of computers, that would be a reason all by itself to expect the M economy to improve by a factor of two every two years. If that were the only thing going on, you'd say, hey, these things are made out of computers. Computers are getting twice as good every two years. Therefore, these things are getting twice as cheap every two years. Right. So yours is even faster. Right. So, But I'm saying 
uh, the, I estimate this economy doubles every month, not every week. And and I and I would say, even if Moore's law stops, this can happen. That is, the basic fact is today in ordinary factories, if you ask how long does it take a factory to make as much stuff as that factory itself consists of, that's on the order of a few months. That's today with ordinary factories. So if we just say, if you could make stuff in factories and have all the stuff you need to make a new factory made in a factory, then factories themselves could just double every few months. That's just in the nature of the way we make stuff today. And so that's a, that's a good clarification. And of course, uh, a further one would be that you do not think that that the collapse of demand from, let's say, the human side of the economy or the collapse of or the slowing of the demand on the M economy or would potentially diminish the demand overall and potentially have a negative impact on the growth of, on the pace of growth of the M economy. In a subsistence economy, the demand is basically to exist. And so uh, if more creatures can exist, then more do and they demand to exist. So demand isn't a problem. Uh, it comes down to how fast can the population grow. So that's why the farming era doubled every thousand years is because the farming era could double every thousand years. There wasn't any problem in having a demand from for those new farmers. The farmers were their own demand. Having twice as many farmers meant there were twice as many mouths to feed, and there was a demand for that much more food. So the farming economy only doubled when it could produce twice as much food. That was the reason why it didn't go any faster, is it wasn't capable of making more stuff faster. But there was plenty of demand for everything it made. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's go to the other parts of your subtitle, which again is uh, work, love, and life when robots rule the earth. Now, we, we did cover the, the economy, uh, which is kind of very important, the foundation for this whole thing, uh, which I would say falls under work. So let's talk about love and life. But And let's talk with life. Let's start with, with life first. So we got that there were Kamaniacs. Those guys work like more than ever in the history of the world. What about life? Do they really have any life? And how does that work in comparison to work? Well, life, of course, includes work. It also includes leisure. It also includes play. Uh, and they would, of course, also have leisure and play. They will have not just things they do with their time. They'll have meaning to their life. That is, they'll have a way they think of their life and how it fits into a larger world and what in that life gives them meaning. So, uh, you can have the same activities, but if you th- don't think about it as a set of things that adds up to a larger thing you care about, you could still have a life without meeting, meaning, if it, even if it's full of activity. So the meaning in M lives come not just from their work and the role they have and the fact that they, of course, as many of us, find that we're needed and wanted and that there's a place in the world for us and that we're contributing to the world and that we're good at it and that the world values us and praises us for the things we do. So they'll have that meaning from work in their lives. They'll also have meaning from their relationships. They would be, have spouses and teams that they care about and socialize with, that they help out, that they're ready to help if there's problems. They would have this new unit of clan of these other copies of themselves that they would feel affiliated with and feel a meaning about being part of that larger unit. They contribute to the reputation of that larger unit and contribute to its finances and contribute to its politics. And they would identify with that larger unit of all the copies of them and feel meaning out of being part of that. It isn't just a small thing. It's a big thing. Uh, And it's not a shift in meaning in the sense that some people or, or many, I don't know what percentage of the population, I have no idea, but I would venture to guess that a lot of the population would say that today people work to live. 
and that's the meaning. The meaning is to live, the two is work. And in your world, it's gonna be kind of the reverse thing, would be live to work. So living is just a tool and working would be the meaning according to you. So that's not like a fundamental radical shift. There. Today, uh, it's a personality distinction. This is one of many standard personality distinctions, whether people are what's called work-oriented or not work-oriented. Some people who are work-oriented today, they find more of their meaning in their work and other people find more of their meaning elsewhere. And what's the percentage of that? I, think, I mean, I would guess they define the metrics so it's more 50-50. Of course, you could make the cutoff anywhere along. But I, I would guess when they do these binary things, it'd be more like 50-50. But it varies by culture. Uh, it is varied across time. And, and it's varied by gender. I believe, uh, you know, men are actually, I think, well, I can't remember exactly. But it, I say, I have it in the book. Uh, but in this M world, they are definitely, it's more of a work-oriented culture. It's more of a work-oriented world. So they would get more of their meaning from work. But they would also get more of their meaning from these relationships uh, that are important to them, just like we get more of our meaning from our relationships. Often, for example, when we have children, we get our, our meaning out of our relationships with our children. M's don't have children in quite the same way, so their meaning from children is somewhat different, but it's more like this meaning of the clan. So in the M world, there's more of a mentor-mentee relationships between these older and younger versions of themselves. And they can get more meaning out of that. Today, we do, of course, have younger people around that we try to give advice, and mostly they don't listen, most often for good reason. Uh, and that's less of a problem for the M's because they are just more similar to these people they're giving advice to. They're in a more similar situation. And so they will, in fact, listen more to the advice of older versions of themselves. They will give more honest advice to the younger versions of themselves, and they will get more meaning out of that connection where they learn some things and they can pass it on. Speaking of children, one of the interesting things here you say in the book is that people, or, or not people, M's would be buying citizenship perhaps for each new child or copy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, how's that going to work? I just listed that as one of the many institutional options that are possibilities. So what I wanted to highlight is that people often think of the future as a place where there's new technology, and by technology, they mean new gadgets and, and physical processes. And social processes are also a kind of technology. So I wanted to point out many of the different ways in which social institutions could potentially change that people have at least made arguments for, and that they were somewhat plausible, and these were at least candidate things that the emulations could choose. And one of them is, as I mentioned, about citizenship. Uh, we have a basic choice in citizenship, how to decide who's a citizen of whatever unit we're in. Now, in smaller... Buying it would be a good option, you think? It's an interesting option to consider. Now, in smaller scale units that we're in, like a church or a firm, we have more flexible people come in and come out, and then we have more of a negotiation. Well, you, know, you want to join our group. Uh, what do you have to offer? And, and do we like what you have to offer? So today we could also treat that for people who join our nations, we could say, well, just like a firm or somebody else, if you want to join us, we have an admission process and we have some evaluation criteria and maybe, you know, um, a, a contribution financially would be uh, considered as a, uh, a a useful contribution to our organization that you want to join. And that's that's not a crazy thing to to consider as a more flexible way to decide who joins our larger units. And one of the other, I think, alternative institutional options that you were just listing and considering was perhaps taxing leisure? Uh, yes. So uh, today, uh, because we tax work and not leisure, arguably we're subsidizing leisure <laughs> relative to work. 
And uh, maybe that's not efficient. So but for the M's, if they were to tax leisure, they would be basically not subsidizing leisure. Uh, that would be a choice. Uh, right. So right now, consciously or subconsciously, we are subsidizing leisure. Yeah. And you might say, you might think if there were other reasons to think we would otherwise get too little leisure, that that's a good thing. Okay, we want to consider those sorts of arguments. But if, unless in the absence of some particular reason to think there would be too little leisure if we weren't subsidizing it, maybe we should allow more work. And therefore, of course, especially if we thought there's too much leisure and not enough work, then we definitely should start taxing the, the leisure so that we can incentivize exactly. work. Of course, especially in a world where the meaning is work. Yes. And so, it makes perfectly logical sense. And many people me. have complained that we are, in fact, getting too little work out of t today and not enough. Uh, we're not getting enough work out of people. But that's been a long dispute. Uh, and again, my main issue wasn't to focus on that dispute, but just to point out that the world could be different than the world we live in. And there are many institutional choices that we have and maybe take for granted that could change. And I'll, in order to give you an image of how a world of M's could be different, I wanted to at least give you a sense that there's a lot of institutional choices that could change for them as well. Right. And, and one of them is to get more work out of people that, because we're not getting enough of them right now. All right. Very good. I'm quite enjoying this, I have to say. Uh, all right. So, um, Let's talk a little bit about the, the politics of that life. How is, uh, you mentioned that, for example, another institutional option is juries that elect uh, leaders, uh, issues like collective punishment, uh, uh, vo vote buying and selling and or vote allocation uh, with respect to the speed that one is running. So can you kind of elaborate on those? Right. So the, the... For the record, I have touched on this before in the previous interview, and we had a big discussion about that, but I'm going to stay a little bit, a lot more quiet on this one and let you just elaborate. Don't do that on my sake. You can do it for your sake. But uh, I, I would, first of all, the first things to notice are ways in which our existing practices just do not project very well into this new world. So that sort of requires that you make changes there. Other changes are more optional. Uh, one M1 vote just doesn't work very well. Uh, if you say one M1 vote, irrespective of speed, then you create this huge incentive just before an election, just like create lots of really slow M's. Again, it's so cheap to make slow M's uh, that why not crank up the population of slow M's if you get one vote per slow M? So unless you find some way to limit the ability to create low, slow M's just to get more votes, it just wouldn't work. Uh, so the damn bastards that are running a thousand times slower than me get 1,000 of my vote, and of course, that's okay. Well, at least if we made speed proportional voting, that's at least more functional. That is, it's it's not possible to simply cram, you know, stuff the ballot box. Of course it's functional, it's not. Yes, it makes course. it no longer possible to stuff the ballot box. Also, of course, as uh, you, you remember perhaps from the book, one of the standard arguments for why we have democracy is that it's a crude proxy for the potential of revolution. One says, in a world without democracy, if there's a lot of unhappy people, um, the, the leaders may not get that there's enough un unhappy people that need a change and will demand change. And so a revolution is the only way that people can express their need for some change. And the claim is... That but there's other reasons behind democracy, even though it's not very functional. <laughs> okay. Well, but, the, but this is one of the reasons why people say there's a democracy. And at least 
For this reason, you might want speed-weighted voting. Of course, there are many. As we, we, I think it was Churchill who said it's democracy is the worst uh, form of governance, save all others. But you know, so that's precisely one of the things I think he was addressing that it's it's not very functional in so many levels, but it's still the best of what we got. But we do so need far. to break it down into which particular functions we do think it's serving, so that we can ask the question: Will democracy persist or not? You know, either we can just be right, and and functionality is only one way to judge. Yeah, it. But the point is. If we're going to ask the question, will democracy continue, we have to have some analytical base. We can't, if we can't just say, yay, raw democracy, we love democracy, therefore it won't change. We have to ask, what are the various sources of influence that would pr make democracy persist or that might make it go away? Some of And functionality is a perfect Right, choice. is one of those sources of influence. Another thing we could say is, what are the things that over history have changed people's liking democracy or not? What are the overall cultural pressures that have induced people to care more about democracy or not? And I give this argument about returning to forager-like values, where I say, uh, in the last few centuries, as we've gotten richer, uh, we have in many ways returned to forager attitudes and values. And that's a natural thing to expect, given that the farming world is a world that's very poor and that has very attitudes and values that are quite alien to foragers and that farming world needed to make farmers act and think in certain ways in order to make farming work, and that succeeded, but it only succeeded via fears and threats that are compelling when you're poor and less compelling when you're rich. And as we've gotten rich, therefore, we've drifted back toward forager values and attitudes. And that's an explanation for many changes in the last few centuries, including the increase in democracy. Foragers are quite democratic. Farmers were much less so. And as we've gotten rich, we've decided that feels better. And that's a plausible explanation for the increase in democracy. Right. But but if we discover in the world of end that it's no longer functional, then it's okay. We can go back to the... Well, also just because since there was so much poor... Just be less democratic. Because, or because democratic. the farmer, the M's are so much poorer, they will be vulnerable to cultural pressures in the way that farmers were. And so the M world has these various farming world culture pressures, including religions, as capacities in order to get M's to do whatever it is that the M culture needs them to do, just like it could for farmers. So that opens up the possibility that they could drop democracy if it were troublesome. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. So uh, now here, I think uh, if I'm to paraphrase what one place uh, of the book, I think in the beginning where you said that your job is not to make everyone like the future, but rather to describe it so that we can see it the way you think it's most likely to be, right. which is to say a bit more of being like the present, more bland, more boring, uh, more of a situation where most people exist in a state of quiet desperation. I'm not sure anybody has read my book and said this was bland and boring. So certainly from the point of view of... No, but those were your words, weren't they? I said that... Uh, we should think that maybe in a typical future, as in a typical past, most people will live and did live lives of quiet desperation. That is, that is, those are the typical lives we have ever seen in history, we see today and in the future. And that's why you think that's most likely to be the case in the future. And that's why you take a middle kind of example. And that's why it wouldn't be so fancy and entertaining, but rather would be bland and boring. And th those are also your words. If I and it's the context of saying, this is the typical life 
that has ever been. And so you shouldn't necessarily expect the future to be that much different or even wanting it to be that much different necessarily. If we read lots of stories about the future, they're set in contexts where there's drama and excitement and big things happening. But if you have to realize most of those big, exciting things happen aren't really great things to have happen to the people around them living, trying to live their lives. Wars and revolutions, et cetera, are not places you want to live your life or have your children live. You'd rather live your life in a more stable world. So uh, I'm just trying to get people to realize that what they probably want for themselves and their children and for ordinary people is a little less excitement and drama than most stories contain. So do you also think they would require a little less democracy, a little less uh, money, and probably as high as a subsistence uh, wage, a little less uh, ability to control who starves and who doesn't, a little less of, of, a, of a, you know, freedom to choose whether they go into the M world or not and all those things. I think, yes, if what you're describing are typical elements of stories we would tell. That is... It's your story. No, I'm no but, but what I mean is story. we have a certain way of thinking about scenarios which is based on stories because we've seen so many stories, scenarios laid out in stories. And so we have a way of relating to scenarios that's a story-like way of relating. We imagine how would that sound as a story? The hero's right. journey. We are wired exactly. to, 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 to like and to tell And stories. so uh, if I tell you a certain scenario of the future and then you imagine a hero in that story and what that hero might do, you will imagine a certain set of attitudes and things they would be satisfied with and things they'd be dissatisfied with and ways they might react or change, try to change that world. And that's how you'd expect a hero or a character in a story to act. And then I want to point out to you that there's the way real people act in real worlds. And it is systematically different than the way characters act in stories. And there's also the way real people want their world to be. And in some many important ways, they don't want their worlds to be like stories. They'd like to read stories and they like to imagine themselves in stories, but they don't want to live in real stories when those real stories have many of the elements that real stories do, which is conflict and change and destruction and wrenching transitions. There are so many things that happen in stories that you might enjoy in a story that you don't want in your real world. So you wouldn't call your transition a wrenching transition? Oh, it is, but I'm, oh, oh it definitely is. But, um, but once it, once it, reaches some sort of equilibrium, you might be happy for them having reached an equilibrium and not uh, have continual yeah, change. Yeah, sure. If, if a grand meteorite hits the earth tomorrow, it's going to be a wrenching transition and eventually the dust would settle right. and things would reach some equilibrium. The problem yes. is in between. Yes. So it's I, going to be a total absolutely. devastation. So if you say, should we endorse this change? One of the negatives is there's a big change, clearly. Uh, right. You'd say, there's a big change and that's disruptive and disorienting and people won't like the fact of change. So whatever happens needs to be good enough to outweigh the cost of change. You have to say, yes, but after the change, things will be better enough that you should have been glad to have paid the cost of change because the world is better enough. And of course, many people in the past would not have said that about many changes that came after them. But you're not saying that things would be better enough. You're saying after the dream time is over. So the best part was behind us, right? The dream is over. The dream was in the 20th century and where we had the best of everything. And now the dream time is over. We're no longer having surplus. We're subsistence. Something of level. an industrial era attitude to think that a dream world is a better world. Uh, 
But but th those were your words. Yes, but a yeah. dream a dream time is is something I think of a double edged sword. It both has positive and negative connotations, and it's interesting to use it to see how people react to it and which connotations they pull out. Right, right, yeah, you're right. It does have a dual connotation. So, uh, okay, interesting. You want to elaborate more on that? I, I think this is part of the key way somebody will engage with my book, which is to realize if I'm right, say about how this world is different than our world, to realize how their era has been special compared to all the eras that come before it and the next era that might come after it, and to reevaluate their commitment to their era's distinctive attitudes and values. I think that's a service that you get from reading my book. You don't have to reject your era's attitudes and values, but you get to see it in a wider perspective and to uh, look at it from that larger distance and see how it looks different from a third point of view and see how these other eras would look at your era and see you as different from them. They would have criticism of you as well as praise. And I think it's worth looking at both of those and then saying, well, do I, have I just habitually accepted the attitudes of my era without thinking about them? Or if I stood back and looked at how my era differs from the other eras, would I really think we are so much better than them in a knee jerk sort of way? Or do I, I think there's good arguments for why we really are better. If we really are better than these other eras in terms of our attitudes being the right ones and theirs being wrong, do I have good arguments for that? So do you think yourself that their world is better in any way or or symbolizes progress in some way? Or, I mean, what what's your take on that? How do you put it? I mean, I know because I've read the book, but for our audience. I first want to stand back and see the whole sweep of history and see the different eras from each of their own point of view and understand that. And then if I ask, okay, yes, but if you get to choose which of these eras to go live in and which of these eras to go support and do something for, which area do you most want to help out and, and support and, and make you know them continue, I, I, I will at that point embrace the idea of progress and say, well, there has been progress across these eras in the sense of our overall capacity increasing. And I see a vast future that continues on from all of these eras. And I'm hopeful that that vast future contains far more value collectively than everything that's come before it. And I want to help that future prosper and exist. I, I do think um, existential risk is the worst thing that could happen because it would take away this vast potential future. And so I do see most of the interesting value that will exist in the universe as in that future of being powerful and expansive and realizing our potential. And so the next era after ours is closer to that future than we are, and it will have more influence over that future than we will. And so I'm more interested in seeing how they will help continue to grow and realize potential and to do more things than that we can because our place is now and leading to the era that comes after us and the eras after that are more up to the next era to decide. Right. Very good. Very good. So you've made yourself clear. Uh, I like that. Now, let's just touch a little bit on the love part of it, because we talked sure. a lot about the economy, work, uh, life. Talk about love. How is that? Because people are emotional Absolutely. creatures, we say, right? We're not necessarily perfect, rational, uh, uh, utility-maximizing agents, but we're very emotional. So tell us One about of the key love. analytical principles I'm using in this book is to say, 
human nature can't change that much, at least in the early M era. Humans embody all this structure and all this history, and we'll make some changes. And in the long run, who knows where it'll end up. But in the short run, it can't change that much. And clearly, one of the most deeply embedded features of our human nature is a appreciation and need for love. Uh, we love and we need love. And love is how we frame a lot of our most important relationships. And so the M's will not eradicate that from their psyche. They probably won't even eradicate the association of love and sex. Even that. You... Some people would say even that's what gives us meaning. Indeed. And I won't want to argue with them. If you find meaning there, I don't want to tell you it's not there. Find the meaning you find and, and great. But so humans will probably long continue in whatever form to have pair bonds and strong love relationships and sex. And so the M's plausibly continue that. Even if they can have things like castration or the equivalent of it in terms of reducing various chemical uh, drives, they'll still probably... To become asexual. But even today, we, we know that in history, eunuchs who were castrated actually had a lot of sex. <laughs> right, but you're talking about eunuchs, but we do have asexual right. people who are not right, castrated, exactly. but just have no interest right. in But we don't know that those people are actually substantially more productive than the others. So we don't have a good reason to expect right. asexual people to outcompete the rest. Actually, Napoleon Hill talks about uh, uh, think and grow rich about what's the word transmutation. I think he he used the word of transmute. One of the the features of successful people that he noticed was like the transmutation of sexual energy into uh, sort of. Was it I sublimation? Is a standard work the word? It's like the therapy. No, that. I, I think he he used transmutation actually but, as a word. Right. If, if but it's I a remember, similar concept, which is you have all these powerful yeah, sexual yeah. drives and, and feelings. Yeah. And if you can if you refocus can, them, to you know, you might be able to translate them or map them onto other things. So you get those things. That certainly already happened. So obviously, one of the things that, say, drives many men to try to succeed in their careers is this image in the back of their mind is more women will like them if they succeed in their careers and they will be loved. And this is, of course, a standard thing that drives people in music and the arts and, and acting, et cetera, is the, is the image that if they were really successful, they would be adored and loved by many people. Right. And you're thinking this would get carried away from our world into the M Right. World, so right? The, the simple conservative assumption, which is the typical thing I choose, is that this would continue. Now, it's possible it could go elsewhere, but I should analyze what happens. So, yes, M's continue to want to be loved and adored and respected, and they continue even to have pair bonds. Uh, they And they can have pair bonds. Now, as we talked about, there may be an unequal demand for male and female labor, and most people do seem to prefer male-female pair bonds, so that creates an immediate problem. What happens with the sex for whom there are more workers? So if, if men end up winning, quote-unquote, by having more men working than women, now all of a sudden most men can't find a woman to be exclusively pair bonded with, and what do they do? And so I talk in the book about a number of strategies that are available to deal with that. Um, and there are many of them, enough to think that it will be okay, but still, it's one of the potential stresses and negatives about this whole world is that they may not have the same access to equal exclusive pair bonds as we do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the future of the relationship would therefore has, I mean, that change would have implications for the future of relationships right. and so on. And the, 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 the standard pair bonding and the, and the the longevity there of more, more. But as I said, on the other hand, they are much less likely to make a choice and really regret it later. 
because they have these other copies of themselves and other teams and other relationships out there, many of which are somewhat older than them, they will get plenty of warning about relationships that tend to go sour in the long run, and they will be able to choose other relationships. So the relationships will be more stable, more predictable, more satisfying in the long run, because they'll have a lot more warning about the long run. Well, Robin, I'd love to keep talking to you here forever, but um, my goal and our goal here is not to kind of exhaustively... Hopefully we have uh, tantalized uh, our listeners that are somewhat tempted by it. Right. So we've, we've, we've got hopefully their appetite wet, wetted by now so that they can... <laughs> <laughs> so that they can actually uh, consider uh, buying the book and, and reading for themselves and judging for themselves. Uh, so let's let's move on. Tell us just uh, in a few words, what's the next book about? So the next book is already written. It's under review at the moment. Uh, and it's with co-author Kevin Simler, who I've been working with for a number of years. And the title is The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. And the idea is that there's a lot of things that we do, even a majority of things that we do, where we tell ourselves that we have a certain reason for doing them. And if you look at the details, it just doesn't make that much sense. We're not really doing them for the reasons we say. And this was a surprise to me. And this took me many years to discover that when I found the first big thing like that and started looking for others, that there really are a lot of things that we do where... The reasons we give just don't make that much sense. And there are other much more yeah, plausible reasons. the story reasons. we're telling ourselves doesn't mesh with the evidence. Right. And so I just thought there should be a book where that was laid out in a straightforward way for ordinary people. So I'd like to be able to take an 18-year-old and say, okay, you've probably heard a lot of things about you and the world. And you're going to hear even more of those. And some of those are lies. <laughs> if you'd like to uh, have a book that laid it out straight, uh, warts and all, not necessarily flattering, but just very straightforward. Here it is. And and you give them some tools, hopefully, with which to uh, combat those those biases and, and or illuminate on... Well, mostly just m knowing about it is, is the first big tool. Uh, Absolutely, uh, yeah. And that's as much, mostly as we can fit into our first book, because we're trying to convince people that it's really there. So for many things, people sort of know that these things are true about a couple of things, but they tend to think of those as exceptions. In order to convince you that it's ubiquitous, we kind of have to just go over lots of different topics to show you just how many different things you're wrong about why you do them. So for those people who want to follow your work and learn more about the upcoming book and the other things that you work on, what's the best place? Well, I have a blog called overcomingbias.com. I have Twitter handle that you can easily look up and um, you'll see most of everything I talk about in one of those two places. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yesterday I was noticing how you had a bit of a discussion uh, with Callum Chase and a few other people on technological unemployment on Twitter as a result of the fact that I shared that we are That's about right. to have an interview. We'll see what Callum thinks. Which was very nice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see how, how he would enjoy this interview. Uh, finally, what's the parting message? What's kind of the, the one thing that we should take away either from your book or from this conversation with you today? I would say a lot of people, including your listeners, think they're interested in the future. Uh, a lot of them read science fiction and enjoy stories about the future, and they've been telling themselves all their lives that the future is one of the things they're interested in. I think, in fact, a lot of those people enjoy the storytelling that's set in the future, and they lower the set of topics and issues that show up in future-oriented discussions. But the actual future itself, they may not, in fact, be as interested in. The Until now. <laughs> the actual future is actually going to be stranger than you might have anticipated. And... 
I thought it would be bland, boring, and more of the same. From the point of view of the people who live there, it is. But from the point of view of you looking at it, it's strange and it doesn't fit simple morality tales. A lot of people often like the future as a place to tell morality tales and they like to discuss the future as a way to criticize or praise things that are happening today. And the actual future is probably so strange and complicated that it's not a very good foil to use to praise people today and criticize people today and to tell morality tales. It's just too strange. That's how your world would have seemed to people thousands of years ago. It's how the farming world would have seemed to foragers. They might have understood some of the basics and sort of grokked it, but it wouldn't have fit their previous morality tales. It wouldn't be a good topic of conversation to get them riled up about things. It would just be strange. And honestly, that's probably the way the future will be. And that's the kind of impression you get from reading my book. So if you're not sure if you really are interested in the future, read my book and then ask yourself, if this were true, how much do I care? <laughs> because honestly, I think many people will realize they weren't really that interested in the future. They liked the future as a place to tell, again, morality tales, exciting adventure stories. It's an exciting place to argue and discuss exciting issues of a certain sort but maybe the actual future just isn't that sort of thing. Yeah, so th the future is, is more than simple morality tales. And it doesn't even fit your morality tales. It's just, a, it's just awkward as a place to tell morality tales. Well, I think that's a fantastic place for us to stop and ponder our conversation and, and what you just shared with us, Robin. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was great talking to you. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 